City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver. A lot to discuss in this episode. And just wanted to start off by sharing the good news that The Last Frankenstein is now available on iTunes to rent or to purchase, which is a really great opportunity again for us. That's like a higher profile platform. So we can uh, then bring a lot more eyes onto our fan base. Uh, I mean, sorry, onto our project and hopefully expand the fan base. Uh, so really excited about that. One of the one of the last of the kind of like the major platforms that I was hoping to get into. Uh, of course, it'd be great if we were ever picked up by Shutter. Don't know that that'll ever happen. Still, still, that's uh, a target for us. But definitely great news that um, the film is now available in uh, iTunes Store. So check that out. Spread the news. And over at YouTube, uh, great to see that the film, the feature-length film, has hit two thousand views, which is also excellent news. Uh, to to touch that milestone. So thank you everyone for the support, for watching it, and for sharing the, the news of it being on these uh, various outlets. So two episodes ago, we discussed the 1969 film Changes. And one of the, one of the things that I walked away from that movie with was the impression that there were definitely scenes shot for that film that didn't make the final cut, which isn't an atypical thing necessarily for a film. It happens a lot, but in the terms of changes, it just was a much more striking sensation that that had happened. Partly it was because of the uh, the filmmaking style. Uh, the last third of the film has a, had a much more traditional narrative approach, while the first two thirds were um, much more freeform in their approach to telling the story. There was... Uh, jumps back and forth in time. There was uh, use of music, uh, songs, uh, in an almost uh, music video style uh, sense. And um, in addition to that, there was also in the end credits of the film, the use of uh, stills from the movie underneath the end credits. And some of those stills were for scenes that uh, had not actually been in the film itself, including a, a scene where the main character has a fight with a motorcycle gang. And it just also really stood out to me how strange it was that certain cast members in the film had such incredibly small screen time. Uh, I had talked about Norman Alden, a really well-known character actor, already established at that time, who literally has like two shots in the film, uh, mere seconds, and uh, very prominently featured with those shots. It's like a medium close-up and a close-up, and it just seemed really strange that um, they would have used him so little. Uh, at that time in his career. And another actor who was in the film, uh, who also was used fleetingly in a very strange way, was Tom Holland. He plays the main character's college roommate and only has, again, a mirror. I don't know if he's even on their screen for a minute, maybe 30 seconds. Only Again, only a couple shots, like a medium close-up uh, and maybe a medium shot. Um, and he's pretty built pretty uh, prominently in the end credits of the film uh, for, for someone who, if that was their intention all along, that he have um, just such a small part that he would have been built so high. Well, Tom Holland, as you may or may not know, we did talk about this last week, Tom Holland 
uh, transitioned out of acting, uh, first to screenwriting and eventually to directing, and uh, is a very well-known name to fans of horror and genre cinema. Uh, As a writer, he penned the scripts to Psycho 2 with Anthony Perkins and the 1984 uh, cult classic uh, video game-based movie Cloak and Dagger, then followed up that by directing two of the um, more iconic horror films of the 1980s, Fright Night and Child's Play. And he has a website, and you can find his email address there. And I, so I thought, what the heck? Why don't I just shoot him an email? Uh, what What do you got to lose? And I did. And I, you know, I mentioned to him that I was a big fan of his work. Um, that I was going to do a podcast about the film changes, and if asked him if he just had any recollections about it, um, and whether or not he had uh, originally more screen time in the film, uh, because uh, you know I pointed out to him how strange it seemed that he was there. He and some of the other cast members were there so briefly. So I ended this email kind of near the end of it. I, I posed the question, you know, I was wondering if you had been originally intended to play a larger part. So he actually did take the time to respond, which is really, really kind of him. Uh, you know, he's still an active filmmaker, so I really appreciate him taking the time out. And he said, uh, this is a reading from his email, my God, I don't remember. I was disappointed because they cut my scenes, but I don't remember why. Terry Gar was in it. I knew from the actor's studio. Hall Bartlett was a hot director at that moment. So, again, really cool that he uh, reached back out, shot shot me an email back out. But also, again, just very much a vindication of my of my theory that uh, this film was had substantial scenes that were shot and then left on the cutting room floor. I don't know. You know, obviously not able to see these scenes, and I'm guessing the footage no longer exists. I don't know whether they would have made for a better film or not, but. Um, yeah, it's just it just it's a film where the the missing footage really stands out. Uh, you know, oftentimes I'd say uh, you know a great deal of the time when full scenes are shot and then removed before the film's released, even if you think the film's better with those scenes, it doesn't really slap you in the face that they're not there when you watch when you watch that initial theatrical release version. Now, random example, I guess comes to mind would be Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Um, the uh, home video version of that, and it's been on DVD and Blu-ray and everything, um, has additional scenes in which you find out that uh, one of the people who's involved in the uh, political assassination conspiracy that uh, is crucial to the plot of that movie, you find out that one of the people is a uh, Federation officer who disguises himself as a Klingon. And that is not in the theatrical cut. Um, so when you, even though I think it actually aids the film that they decided to do it that way uh, in the in the home video release in the director's cut, I think it, it's good that they put that back in there. Um, it's not something you ever would have known was missing had you seen the theatrical cut. So usually when this happens, again, you might think the film's better with the footage that was left out, but it's not really necessarily. Um, it's not the absence of that footage is not something that necessarily screamed out to you at the moment, but this was an example where it did, and so really again appreciate uh, Tom Holland reaching back out and uh, confirming my my wild crazy uh, hypothesis about this movie. So for fans of classic cinema, one of the news stories that's come out in the last week or so is that streaming versions of the uh, landmark 1971 film The French Connection have been edited for content. So, of course, if you're not familiar with this film, 
Uh, it's based on a true story uh, about a pair of cops played by Gene Hackman and uh, Roy Scheider who uncover a massive heroin deal about to go down in New York City. It won Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Actor, uh, Editing, as one of the most famous car chase scenes ever, uh, directed by William Friedkin, who also uh, gave us The Exorcist. And um, there's a scene in the film where uh, Hackman and Scheider's characters, uh, Popeye Doyle and Cloudy, are having a conversation after having just arrested a uh, black suspect uh, who, in the process of arresting them, um, Roy Scheider's character was received a minor injury, a knife injury. And in uh, describing the suspect, uh, Papa Doyle uses the N-word. Now, um, in the context of the film, that is just who that character is of Popeye Doyle. He is that guy who has no problem referring to a black criminal criminal using racial epithets. At the same time, gets along fine with um, black cops. He's very uh, rough and tumble, very street, um, very uh, instinct driven, and having him use that language is not a defense of that in the film, nor are they in that scene trying to criticize his use of that language. They are merely just portraying him as using that language because that's just what a cop in 1970s New York City street cop, that's how they would talk. So um, this has always been available in all forms of the movie, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, streaming, on TV. But apparently um, people have noticed that recently on the Criterion's uh, channel, their screen, their streaming platform, um, on actually on airings on Turner Classic, on repertory screenings in theaters, and that um, that language has been cut out, and not only just cut out, but in a really awkward way. So within that conversation, they basically cut out, like, it's like, I think it's nine seconds, six or nine seconds, in the middle of the conversation where that racial dialogue happens. And so you go from, basically, they're, they're in a, um, a police precinct, and they're talking, and it just is this awkward cut to them standing in different positions within the same room. So it's not even like a smooth um, handling of that. Now, who's behind this? It's Well, Disney, uh, Disney bought Fox Studios, which made the French Connection. And so it's believed that they're the ones kind of uh, behind this, behind this uh, cutting of the film. Interesting thing, though, is that uh, Disney Plus in Canada and the UK still show the unedited version. So that's kind of weird. Um, but obviously, you know, this is not the kind of thing you want to ever see happen in a film, uh, regardless of the intentions of the filmmaker. Again, it was obviously William Friedkin and Ernest Tidyman who wrote the script, and Gene Hackman are not racists. And um, their intent in putting this in the film is merely just uh, for realism. Uh, again, it, it's, there's, it's not to be racist, nor did they feel the need to... Uh, uh, criticize this part of Gene Hackman's character. It's merely uh, reality-driven. Um, and so to uh, on a couple reasons it's wrong to remove this. First off, it's wrong to remove it because, again, it just ignores um, the whole context uh, of the use of that language. Um, when this scene actually came out uh, in, during the film's original theatrical release, there were uh, black audience members who would cheer that scene, that, that specific scene, because they saw it as finally acknowledging that this happened, that cops like in New York City or anywhere really at that time behaved like this. And so they were you know, glad to see that that wasn't just something that was just uh, glossed over or that uh, sanitized. Um, you know, I think that now it's kind of, it's unfortunate that we can't 
we, we that there's a sense within the entertainment industry in certain parts of the entertainment industry that you can't present certain types of ugliness in the world and certain types of immorality. Um, you know, it's it obviously it is kind of controversial these days still to um, use racial epithets in film, even when you're not defending it. Obviously, uh, even when you're just trying to. Uh, show the reality of a certain situation or a certain time period. Um, and, or if you do uh, have that language being used, there's a, it's like there's a sense that you need to have whoever used that language be criticized right away in the film. The film needs to have an actual stance, a very uh, easily recognizable stance uh, that the characters within that film are going to criticize that kind of behavior and not tolerate it. So the kind of non-judgmental approach of a film like The French Connection is um, looked at with disapproval. Uh, I personally love this about the 70s. This is one of the things I love about filmmaking of the, this time period, is that the approach was often uh, driven by a sense of what, what is reality, what is what's most realistic. And what they did is they created, back in the 70s, they created all these characters who were so incredibly well-defined and so incredibly three-dimensional. Um, like Popeye Doyle, like the character that Gene Hackman plays in this movie, who's a character that is so incredibly detailed that you know this person in real life. You know you've probably encountered someone like this or someone of this personality type. And they take that character who's so well-defined, and then they construct a narrative that drives the story. Uh, in this case, you know, the drug bust of the French Connection. And so then once they have this uh, very well-defined character in this very well-defined situation, they just put the two together. They stick that character into that situation, and then they just let let it play out as it realistically would. Um, Dirty Harry, you know, is another example. You have this cop who's fed up with the restrictions of the law, um, played by Clint Eastwood, and then you have the situation with the serial killer on the loose who's able to hide behind the law in order to uh, evade responsibility. They put those two things together, and they let it play out as it naturally would, and they do so without judgment. Um, they do so without feeling the need to necessarily, you know, come right out and say, oh, it's really bad that Popeye Doyle just swore that he just did this other thing in the movie. There's other things that he does in the movie that aren't even racially related that have serious consequences. And it's, again, it's not that the filmmakers or the actors, um, you know, support this kind of behavior. It's just that they, there is no need, they feel, to preach. They, you know, if you you can observe this behavior and come away with your own judgment on it. Uh, it's not necess necessary for uh, this uh, judgment on it to be force-fed. And I think that's, that's some of the best type of storytelling. It's how I, you know, I personalized Frankenstein was, you know, obviously I don't agree with a lot of, a lot of the actions that Jason Frankenstein, the main character, um, engages in, but I'm also not judging him. I'm not criticizing. Uh, I'm just letting the story play out. So it's unfortunate to see Disney, presuming it is uh, the House of Mouse, that's the actual ones who made this decision, to cut this uh, footage out without any awareness of the context. But I also think it's wrong on any level. So like, if this was even if this was footage from a movie that was driven by racism or racial insensitivity, I still would have a problem with it being cut out. Because I don't think it serves any purpose to uh, hide, hide that, uh, or hide the fact that that happened uh, from the populace. So obviously, great examples would be pretty much any depiction of a black character in American cinema prior to uh, World War II. Um, 
you know, they, it was just, they were just uh, probably like, what, 95, probably 98% of that is racist. Whether it's to the uh, far extremes of The Birth of a Nation, the Debbie Griffiths classic silent movie um, with white actors of blackface and you know, all these very uh, grotesque uh, caricatures of black people and their behavior. Or it's just something as uh, more innocuous but still wrong as uh, the stereotypes uh, portrayals of black characters, black servants, black uh, waiters, black uh, bellboys on trains by uh, people like Van Tan Moreland or, uh, you know, Step and Fetch It. That is content that shouldn't be censored or removed either, even though it is the result of inappropriate racially driven decisions by uh, the people who made those movies. You know, removing that content it's like denying that it happened, but it did happen. I mean, racism, unfortunately, still happens on a huge level today and still, still does to a degree influence the arts. But obviously back then it was uh, a lot more prominent. It happened. It's, it shouldn't be something that we denied happening, which is essentially kind of what censorship does. It's almost like we're pretending it was never there. Um, it's something that we should allow to exist and discuss and should be able to talk about. Um, and the truth is, I mean, Man Tan Moreland's a great example. His his performances as an as a actor, yeah, they are they are they they do play to stereotypes of black people for sure. Back then, and if you're not familiar with Man Tan Moreland, just Google him. If you're fans of '40s uh, cinema, you, I'm sure you've seen him in lots of stuff. He was in uh, ho- low budget horror movies like Revenge of the Zombies and King of the Zombies. He was also in a lot of the Charlie Chan films at Monogram Pictures, and later on in his life, he was in Spider Baby, the cult classic. But the thing is, even though his performance might have this connection to uh, perceptions of racial of, of black people's behavior and stereotypes about black people, there's also no denying the fact that he was a really good comedic actor. So if he was giving that same performance, and there, and we lived in a world where there was no racism, and he was just giving that performance because he felt it was the way to sell that character from a comedic standpoint, uh, we wouldn't even think twice about. Uh, tipping the hat to him and paying respects to his abilities uh, because it was just, it's just, he is a very good comedic actor. Um, so there's even that, that kind of aspect of things where, you know, si- sometimes censoring um, even racially motivated content can actually uh, destroy the legacy of some of the uh, entertainers behind it. And then just in general, of course, you know, there's other types of evils in art besides just those driven by racism. You know, I mean, there's, Films that uh, were made that basically supported the blacklisting uh, or and the of uh, leftists during the kind of the uh, communist witch hunt era, and that basically helped uh, perpetuate the Red Scare. Um, there's been films made in history, especially during uh, Hitler's regime, over in films made in Germany that were anti-Semitic. Um, but I don't think that these films should ever be destroyed or censored in any way just because of this content. Uh, they exist. They happened. There's no changing that. There's no denying it. There's still works of art, even if they have offensive and immoral aspects about them. And they stand as a testament to what was permissible at that time, which is something we can all learn from. So by all means, if if there's a need, if there's a, a sense that these films should be presented with some kind of um, disclaimer at the beginning or um, 
somebody kind of introducing this artwork with uh, a lesson on the context of it. I've had no problem with that. That 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 totally makes sense, especially for someone who kind of walks into a viewing of these movies uh, without any understanding of the history behind it. Um, but to actually edit them, to bury them, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that we should be concerned about. And again, the French Connection is like, it's not even a racist film, right? It's just showing characters engaging in this kind of behavior that we we don't approve of. So that was in the news lately. Um, no comment yet from William Friedkin, I don't believe on it. I'm sure he would be pissed off about it. Um, but I'm interested to see if he does ever release a statement about this. And uh, for, of course, fans of physical media like myself, we have the unedited Blu-ray copies to uh, rely on until maybe this gets sorted out down the road. But definitely something I wanted to comment on because it did get a lot of attention uh, recently. So we did have a couple passings recently. To, uh, more than just a couple, but the two that I really especially wanted to uh, touch upon. Uh, the first was actor Barry Newman, who uh, left us age 92 on uh, May 11th. Um, Newman's really known for above all his work, for two characters that he brought to life. Um, the most iconic of these is uh, Kowalski, the main character of the 1971 film Vanishing Point, which is this you know, amazing movie uh, in which he plays a, a former cop who transports cars, drives them from one location to another, and he has to uh, bring a, a white 1970 Dodge Challenger from Denver to San Francisco, and the film starts out on a Friday night, and he has to have it, the car there by Monday. And he basically is like, I can have it there by Sunday. And he's just going to do pills and uppers and uh, so he can stay awake and drive really fast. And along the way, as he's making this trip, he's meeting different characters. Um, and he's ha we're seeing flashbacks into his life, uh, what brought him to this, where he is now. The film is just an amazing piece of existential work. It's just this deep dive into this character, his attitudes, his mindset, his persona, and the idea of it as a car movie, that's really just the, the skeleton. That's really what provides um, the framework upon which to build this character study. Of course, there's nothing wrong with a good car movie, but it, this is something that goes beyond that into uh, just a complete character portrayal. Um, and the film, when it initially came out, wasn't that successful in the States, was more successful abroad, but has gone on to have this huge cult reputation. And it really is an excellent film, uh, one of my favorites from that era. Such an incredible portrait of a character who basically can only exist in our world by kind of creating this existence within existence, where he's just constantly racing, driving, existing at this high rate of speed. I uh, just amazing film, amazing film. Definitely check it out. But the other character uh, that Newman is known for bringing to life is that of Anthony Petricelli, lawyer Anthony Petricelli. And that character made its appearance first in a 1970 film called Lawyer, which was um, the first starring role, not the first movie Newman was in, but it was his first starring role. And that film was based on the Dr. Sam Shepard murder case, which also served as the inspiration for uh, the Fugitive TV series. And Petricelli is this um, Boston-born, Boston uh, Harvard-educated edu Harvard attorney who's now in the American Southwest, uh, Italian-American, um, 
there with his wife, played by the wonderful Diana Moldauer. And he has to defend a doctor accused of murdering his wife. And helping him out uh, is a, a private investigator named Charlie, played by Ken Swafford. And the film was successful enough that it eventually led to a TV show um, called Petricelli, which ran from 1974 to 1976, two seasons. Um, in that show, the role of his wife uh, was now played by Susan Howard, uh, and her name was changed from Ruth to Maggie. And Howard actually won an Emmy for her work on the show. And the uh, pers- the uh, investigative assistant, that character's name was changed to uh, Pete Ritter and was played by uh, the great character actor Albert Salmi. And uh, Newman himself w- did earn an Emmy nomination for the show. Now, um, the kind of the conceit of the show, uh, one of the built-in uh, kind of mechanisms of it, was that the crime, which I believe was always murder, I think he was always defending murder uh, suspects, because I did see this entire series. Um, the The premise of the show was that you'd see the crime enacted multiple ways throughout the episode. You'd see it from the viewpoint of how the uh, you know cops slash district attorney believed it happened, um, which of course involved um, Petrocelli's client committing the act. You'd see uh, Petrocelli's uh, viewpoint on it. He would sometimes to the jury or however, uh, lay out his, his theory on how the crime happened. And that was kind of the, uh, the gimmick, I guess, for lack of, a, lack of a better word, of the show. Um, like I said, I watched this entire series, and I've seen the film, The Lawyer. Now, the, the, the original film, we kind of talked about that a week or two ago because Imprint Films out of Australia is releasing a box set of Blu-rays of the works of director Sidney J. Fury. And in it is included The Lawyer, which you know, Fury directed. Um, and this is going to mark the first disc-based physical media release this film's ever had. When I watched it, I had to rent it off like YouTube. Um, you know, Paramount owns this movie, and all they had on YouTube was like a really old, uh, not even the right aspect ratio, like VHS tape master kind of thing going on. So I'm definitely interested in going back to that, uh, to get that box set and review that in the right aspect ratio in high def. Um, the movie was enjoyable. The show, I mean, I had a good time, I guess, watching it, but it's not, I can't say it's actually a good show. It was put out on DVD by uh, Visual Entertainment Inc. They put out the whole series. And to kind of look at the problems I have with the show, a good thing to do is kind of is to compare it to what I consider one of my all-time favorite shows and definitely the, the best legal show I've ever seen, which is the original Perry Mason. Now, the original Perry Mason with Raymond Burr, it had its own kind of gimmick or uh, conceit, which is that at the end of the episode, famously, um, the person who actually has committed the crime that uh, Perry Mason's client is accused of, that person, the, the real actual uh, criminal, will have this like breakdown and confess to the crime, admit to it usually. And it'll oftentimes be on the, on the actual witness stand. Now, it's unrealistic, obviously, completely most of the time when this happens because um, if they just didn't say anything, they could probably still get away with it in most circumstances, or at the very least, they'd plead the fifth. Yeah, yeah, they're going to completely give all the details out on the stand without any legal protection. It's ridiculous. But the thing about Perry Mason is the people who made that show understood that. They knew it wasn't realistic. It was a storytelling device because they packed so much meat into each of those hour-long episodes, so much story, and so many twists into those um, into those narratives that they just knew you know, there wasn't enough time at the end to really kind of go through what would, what would be a time-consuming process of actually having the uh, true criminal be confronted and then 
suspected of actually having committed the crime, and then maybe they'd have to be put on trial to actually get to the point where you could have closure on the story, and you'd know that not only was the Perry Mason's client um, acquitted, but also the actual criminal was found and held accountable. It would take so long to kind of go through that process at the end um, to really show that play out in any kind of realistic way that they just abridged it by having uh, you know this person basically have what I call a Perry, a Perry Mason breakdown and just confess to the crime. It's a storytelling device to allow for maximum story throughout the rest of the episode and then take this um, this final uh, revelation of information and make it as brief as possible. And they, in realizing that this wasn't unlike the rest of the show, which is a, overall a pretty realistic show, in realizing that this was kind of an unrealistic aspect of Perry Mason, they kind of leaned into that and they kind of like, all right, if this isn't reality, we're just going to go for unreality to the max. So oftentimes when the cast member who has this breakdown has it, is they really play to like the back of the theater. They really go all out, and it's just a really huge, overwrought uh, performance. Even if their performance throughout the rest of the episode has been completely level, um, it doesn't matter. They're going to just have this great uh, 200% uh, nervous breakdown practically on on the stand, and it just makes it incredibly entertaining to, to watch that happen. Now, with Petricelli, the thing is, is that these different theories as they're put forth by Petri- uh, by different um, characters in the show, oh, maybe this is what happened, maybe that's what happened. The thing is, is that Petricelli, when he's putting forth his theory, which is so key to the case because he's got to be able to show what could have possibly happened that would at least get you to believe that even if, even if you're not ready to say that my clients uh, didn't do it, you, you, there's enough reasonable doubt. He's usually kind of like, spitballing it unfortunately not that he's not doing any investigative work or any leg work maybe spitballing is not the best word but it's his uh, his presentation of his theory of the crime a presentation which is what allows his clients to get off without being uh, held accountable it's often based so incredibly heavy heavily on conjecture and beliefs that aren't really borne out necessarily by um, enough evidence. It's it's more of him basically saying, oh, I, ca- I can see this kind of, I see this clue here, clue A and clue B, and I really need clues C, D, and E to really prove this to a jury, but I'm going to go forward and put this theory out anyways, and within the narrative, the jury or the judge buys it. They're, they think it's, it's convincing enough, but it's really not convincing enough. These theories that he puts forth in each episode to uh, get his defendants acquitted they're awfully they're oftentimes very weak in terms of any kind of evidential uh, uh, background, any kind of evidential uh, framework, so that you you couldn't for a moment believe that the uh, the judge or the jury would allow this person to walk. And it's not unlike Perry Mason, where you have the Perry Mason breakdowns. They take a really uh, small part of runtime out of the entire episode. I mean, the actual it's it's like a minute maybe out of like a 51 minute runtime without commercials. These kind of um, theoretical viewpoints uh, take up a much more substantial time within Petrocelli. So you're kind of uh, putting the lime, the spotlight for a longer period of time on this kind of gimmick of your show. And that gimmick is inherently weak. Whereas, and, and it's, it's, it's so crucial to your show. It is like part of the, the Petrocelli package. Like you're going to watch a show where you're going to see multiple viewpoints on this crime. 
but it's inherently weak the way you actually built that out. You haven't really actually had the police come forward with this really believable theory as to what happened and really borne out by the evidence and then taking that same evidence and shown how it can be really believably presented to show that Petrocelli's client didn't commit it. You're just kind of doing it very haphazardly, and, you know, very poorly. Um, whereas with Perry Mason, you know, the focus is often much more on the narrative and the plot structure and um, that that part of the Perry Mason breakdown, that part where you know, okay, this is unrealistic. It really occupies, like I said, it occupies a very little part of the runtime. It's not really where the focus of the show is and they have fun with it at the same time. And the other problem with Petrocelli a lot of times is that, you know, again, comparing it to Perry Mason, Perry Mason had very little in the way of um, character, I want to say character development. It, it did have very little in the way of character development, but it had very little in the way of character portrayal. You know, the main characters in Perry Mason, which were Perry Mason, his secretary, Della Street, his private eye, Paul Drake, those two played by Barbara Hale and William Hopper, respectively. And then there's the district attorney, Hamilton Berger, played by William Talman. And then there's whoever the lead detective is, which was played. There are three different uh, detective characters throughout the run of Perry Mason. They establish these characters and what makes them tick, who they are, with just the uh, leanest, most muscular, most uh, shorthand form of, of writing. They don't take a lot of time to really uh, spend with the characters outside of the actual narrative of the episode. Um, they, they let us see who these characters are and what their personalities are like through the small reactions they have to the events of the episode, through their interactions with each other that they would have to have because of the events of the episode. They don't take time to really kind of go off and have uh, you know Perry Mason and Paul Drake go to a bar and have drinks and talk about their time in the military or or you know Della Street you know visits Perry Mason at home and talks about her family what we learn about these characters is learned through um, interactions and conversations that are necessary because of the actual plot line of the episode so we get this incredibly uh, you know, incredibly grounded very detailed look at who these characters are but without having to deviate from the meat of the TV series, which is that it is a mystery crime show. We don't, you know, it's not supposed to be a character drama. Um, and the fact that there isn't character development, what I meant by that is just that, you know, it's not like Perry Mason's on a character arc or, or Paul Drake's on a character arc. They are who they are, which is, which is fine. That's realistic. Like, you know, they're, they're adults. They're, most of us as adults don't have character arcs. Uh, we, we kind of are on a path that's pretty steady. And they really allow that kind of stuff to take backseat to just the stories of the episodes. And because they're devoting so much time at Perry Mason to the mystery itself, to the crime, it's just, like I said, there's so much, so much meat in those episodes from a narrative viewpoint. Now, Petrocelli, by comparison, does get more often, uh, more more into kind of like interaction between Petrocelli and his wife, romantic banter, uh, them talking about trying to have kids, stuff going on with uh, Pete there, their private detective. And it's not that that's wrong to do that, but it's just not terribly interesting. It's kind of very repetitive. Um, there's this whole kind of like backstory uh, subplot of Petrocelli and his wife. They, they live in a trailer, but he's building a house by hand. And... Um, you know, him, you know, having to, you know, do things at the house or, you know, deal with local contractors for different parts of the house or putting the bricks up by himself. You know, it's just very repetitive. It doesn't seem to ever go anywhere. It's not like he's any closer to building that house at the end of the second season than he was at the beginning of the first. Um, so it's just kind of like uninteresting uh, character moments um, that, again, because now you're using part of your hour runtime to have 
have these scenes of character interaction that aren't overly interesting or exciting, you're also just taking away from time that could have been better spent on putting more meat on the bones of your mystery. Maybe if Petrocelli had taken some more time away from those kind of character actions, character interactions between Petrocelli and his wife or Petrocelli and his private investigator, they could have uh, built out the mystery better so that these kind of uh, theories that Petrocelli puts forth in court um, seem more believable and seem more more realistic. Um, and it seemed like they kind of were starting to realize the problems of the show near the end of it because if you like the last few episodes of the second season, maybe it's like four or five episodes, they kind of even started to get away from that uh, format. There's, there's like one episode where it's more, uh, there's a couple of them actually, which are more like just like suspense where like Petrocelli's wife is being held hostage or Petrocelli finds himself in the desert in one episode with a, a criminal. But uh, whatever changes they made was not enough to renew for a third season. Now, again, not not um, not a I'm not gonna say it's a good show, but it still does have its its merits. A lot of great guest actors popping up on it: Joanna Moore, Dewey Martin, John Ritter, uh, Scatman Crothers is in an episode. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting about it is they filmed it on location down in the Southwest. They filmed it on location in Arizona. Um, so it's not it's not them trying to recreate Arizona by way of the California deserts. Um, and each, even though you might think, oh, all deserts are the same. No, it definitely has its own distinct look to it. Um, they're filming on location at real uh, towns and outside real, um, you know, uh, municipal buildings. Um, and so it's a really interesting peek into this part of America, the American Southwest during the 1970s. They're also using a lot of local actors uh, for supporting roles. You see them pop up multiple times throughout the episode. Actors who you might not see a lot in other things from that time period because they were based in Arizona versus like L.A. or New York City. So I think that's kind of one of the strong points of the show. Um, is this kind of like look at uh, look at Arizona during this time, um, but Newman's good. You know, I I, I love the guy, and uh, you know he did. In addition to Petrocelli, the show and Vanishing Point, he did headline several other films throughout the '70s: uh, Fear is the Key, The Salzburg Connection, City on Fire. Um, wasn't really able though to uh, develop that into a career as a, a successful career as a as a big leading man. He really wasn't. And he kind of, as he got into the 80s, was more of a supporting actor and stuff. Still popped up in good films. He was in Daylight, which I really liked, the Stallone movie. Um, famously was in uh, The Limey, Steven Soderbergh's movie, which uh, made a point of casting a lot of actors from the 60s and 70s in it. El Peter Fonda was in it, Joe D'Alessandro, Leslie Ann Warren. And Newman had a really good role in that. So, um, yeah, a great career. Uh, definitely, like I said, the, left behind these two iconic roles. And uh, sorry to see him uh, move on. The other person who passed away uh, was Noreen Nash, uh, age 99. Um, and she has a very special place in my heart. So she was a starlet, started out in uh, the early 40s. She was an uh, actress originally over at MGM. And, uh, you know, really just kind of like these kind of like starlet uh, walk-on parts on films. Um, some of the movies she appeared in over at MGM included... Uh, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. She was in the Esther Williams movie Bathing Beauty. She was in Girl Crazy with Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Again, these are just very small parts. Um, so she left MGM in like the mid-40s and was actually cast in Jean Renoir, the famous French director's, one of his, actually probably his most famous film while he was in America, which is The Southerner, and it was which he was nominated for Best Director for. And she had a really uh, key supporting role in that movie. So that really kind of elevated her a bit. 
And then she continued to show up in films. Um, a lot of B-movies. She was definitely a lot of B-movies. Uh, but she got, like, lead roles. And uh, she was the Bud Baedeker uh, film noir assigned to danger. Um, she's the uh, villainess in The Lone Ranger and The Lost City of Gold, which was the second of the uh, two uh, theatrically, theatrically released Lone Ranger movies that Clayton Moore was in. She had a, a small but key supporting role in George Stevens' classic movie Giant with James Dean and Rock Hudson. She plays the uh, movie actress who's friends with Rock Hudson and his family travels with them. Um, she was in uh, Wake Me When It's Over, the Ernie Kovacs comedy. Also uh, starred on a, a very short-lived sitcom called The Charles Farrell Show. Very, it only lasted like 11 episodes. And I think she left after like the first half of them. But the thing to me that I always remember her for um, is her role in a movie called Phantom from Space, which is a 1953 science fiction movie, low budget, directed and produced by W. Lee Wilder, who was a uh, uh, very low-budget filmmaker, worked often and did a lot of genre films, horror and science fiction, also did um, worked in some other areas too. But he was the older brother of Billy Wilder, who, of course, is the multiple Academy Award-winning filmmaker, legendary director who did movies like Double Indemnity, The Lost Weekend, The Apartment, uh, Sabrina. And I've always been a fan of W. Lee Wilder's work as a director. I think there's some very interesting things he does uh, in his films. And this is one of the first movies, if not the first movie I saw of his, at least in its entirety. Um, I actually, as a kid, and there's a chain of, uh, supermarkets in my area called Price Chopper. And now they're called, uh, they're, they're rebranding them. They're calling them Market 32. But, uh, when I was a kid, I was like, uh, man, I would have been about nine, I think. Um, they had this huge display of VHS tapes at one of, at the local Price Chopper. And it was, uh, a line of videotapes called Grandpa Presents, and they were put out by a company called Amvest Video. And each tape had an introduction by Al Lewis, you know, Grandpa Munster. Um, and so if you looked at the front cover of these tapes, at the top was Al Lewis on the top over the, kind of like uh, clutching the top of the uh, artwork, and it said Grandpa Presents. And um, my aunt uh, was with me, and she uh, bought me a copy of Fan from Space. I remember they were like $1.99. Uh, each and this was back in like yeah like I said like 30 years ago and so I watched Phantom from Space which uh, Noreen Nash is the leading lady of I guess you could say it's it's kind of like more of an ensemble piece among like the five or six top characters um, but because uh, that is kind of like my introduction to um, W. Lee Wilder because it's one of the earliest it was one of the first videotapes I ever got um and because of like just this great memory I have about like this huge display of all these uh, horror and science fiction movies at Price Chopper, it's just such a nostalgic connection I have to that movie. Um, that Noreen Nash has always kind of had this special place uh, in my in my uh, cinematic heart. But uh, 99 years old, incredible life that she lived. She was outlived both her husbands. Uh, her first husband was Lee Siegel, who was the medical director at 20th Century Fox. Uh, studio and was known as the Doctor to the Stars because obviously you know he was the doctor for all of the 20th Century Fox um, uh, actors and actresses and as well as for Daryl Zanuck, the head of 20th Century Fox. Um, and after he died, uh, Ms. Nash remarried uh, to James Whitmore, the uh, twice Oscar-nominated actor who has appeared in such films as The Asphalt Jungle, Battleground, The Shawshank Redemption, Them, um, and then you know he did predecease her as well. So just uh, definitely a tip of the hat to her. Um, a couple other passings that I'll just touch on real quick. Um, one of them was uh, um, uh, Jacques Roger. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. He was a 
director who first director mostly worked in shorts, but he did do uh, several feature films, including Adi Philippine uh, and Main Ocean. Uh, but key to his passing is the fact that he is basically considered the last surviving member of the French New Wave. After Jean-Luc Godard died, uh, Rosier was looked at as the last last person left from that cinematic movement. So uh, definitely uh, important to note that he left us. Um, another person who passed on was Gilbert Taylor. Um, he was a Canadian uh, filmmaker. Uh, didn't have a lot of titles in his filmography, but as a uh, director of a Frankenstein movie myself, I feel important to point out uh, his passing because he directed he directed and wrote the 1970 film Dr. Frankenstein on Campus, which I've seen. It is a fun film, a fun uh, contemporary take on the Frankenstein uh, story. Um, Taylor f later just did, that was the only film he actually directed. He later did some producing. He produced a family film called Pinocchio's Birthday Party and a movie about Jack London called Klondike Fever. And both of those were in the 70s. And last, uh, which I just read about today, and again, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this, but uh, Yukiko Takayama uh, passed away. Uh, she was born in 1940. Uh, she was a Japanese writer and director. Uh, her first screenplay she ever wrote was Terror of Mechagodzilla, which aside from that being cool that it's a Godzilla film, it's also a very important Godzilla film because it was the last entry in the original run of Godzilla films, which is referred to as the Showa era of Godzilla movies. Um, that had started with the very first Godzilla movie back in the mid-50s, and this was the last entry. And in the, in the mid-80s, they brought back uh, Godzilla again in what would be called the Heisei, or Heisei. I'm sure I'm butchering that era. Um, but yeah, she wrote the last of those. Um, and she was, I believe, the first female writer. I read somewhere she was actually the only female writer. I, I can't attest to that uh, on Godzilla films. Um, so later on, when they, she did actually... Uh, co-write the story for a later Godzilla movie, Godzilla and Mothra, The Battle for Earth. But she also wrote uh, other films and episodes of TV shows. She wrote some anime shows. She directed a couple movies, too. Um, so, yeah, sad to see her go, especially, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, the original era of Godzilla films. Love that stuff. All right, uh, let's move on now to uh, title announcements that have come out recently. Uh, one that uh, has a personal connection to... Uh, my career as a filmmaker into the last Frankenstein is one of the uh, titles recently announced by Warner Archives. They are going to be putting on Blu-ray uh, the 1931 Western Cimarron. So Cimarron has a very important place in film history because it was the first Western to win the Oscar for Best Picture. And it was the last Western <laughs> to win the Oscar for Best Picture for like 60 years. The next one wouldn't be until Dances with Wolves from 1990. So quite a dry run. So there were several Westerns in that era, in that in the interval that were nominated for Best Picture, like uh, How the West Was Won and Shane. But uh, that was, that was uh, the only one to win uh, until Dances with Wolves. It also won the Oscar for Best Screenplay and Best Art Direction. Why is, it, uh, why is there a personal connection for this film? Well, the leading man in this movie was Richard Dix, who, of course, is Bob Dix's dad. Um, you know, he, Like I said before, Richard Dix was one of the most popular leading men of his era, and he received his sole Academy Award nomination for his performance in this movie for Best Actor. Um, he starred opposite Irene Dunn, who for this movie received the first of her six, no, I'm sorry, five nominations uh, for Best Actress. Uh, Irene Dunn is one of those uh, people who falls in that category of legendary, highly revered, critically acclaimed, very popular performers 
who never won an Oscar, despite being nominated uh, five times. But um, I've never seen Severan. I knew they had put it out on DVD a while ago. Um, I definitely want to pick this up. Uh, you know, I've heard that it hasn't aged well necessarily, that it's kind of creaky. Uh, but hey, I, I definitely want to see it just to see uh, Bob's dad, Richard Dix, um, in this kind of iconic role of his. I've seen uh, several several others of Richard Dix's films, but uh, definitely want to check this out. So that's coming out from Warner Archives. A couple other titles that they just announced that are worth mentioning from uh, from the same uh, label. One is uh, The Broadway Melody. And this is a 1929 movie that has uh, historical significance for many reasons. It is the first musical to ever win the Best Picture Academy Award. It was the first sound film to ever win the Best Picture Academy Award. Um, it was MGM's first musical. Of course, that's a, uh, a studio that was renowned for their musicals throughout the years. And it was the first all-talking musical, so on many levels, uh, a very important uh, uh, film. Also on Blu-ray, they're putting out The Last Time I Saw Paris with Van Johnson and Elizabeth Taylor. This is based on the um, F. Scott Fitzgerald story, Babylon Revisited. It was directed by Richard Brooks, came out in 1954. And the cool thing about this getting a Blu-ray release is this was made by MGM, which... Warner Brothers owns basically all the MGM library up to like some time. It's a specific month in the early 80s. And the thing about uh, The Last Time I Saw Paris is that it is one of a handful of MGM movies that fell into the public domain for one reason or another. Uh, in the case of The Last Time I Saw Paris, uh, they when they put the copyright year on the movie, 1954, they inverted two of the Roman numerals. And so it ended up reading 1944 which they were very strict about that kind of thing back in back at this time now now that wouldn't now it's so hard for a movie that's released to fall into, into the public domain unless the actual 95 years or whatever the time li limit is has passed but back in that era a slight typo could really screw you over uh for your film's copyright so the film actually um appeared to have a 1944 copyright which means that the renewal would have would be 10 years earlier than uh, MGM realized. Um, so presumably that is that is presumed to be why it fell into the public domain because they weren't expecting to have to renew it for another 10 years. And the thing about these movies that fall into the public domain, of course, when they're owned by a major studio, is there's less incentive to uh, restore them, re-release them. Because you know the movie like the last time I saw Paris had so many budget label releases on VHS and DVD, so many dollar DVDs, um, you know, where... Warner Brothers did eventually put it out through the Warner Archives on DVD, uh, give it a legit authorized release from their elements. And so it's really cool to see that they did take the time to uh, restore this for Blu-ray. Um, and obviously that's what you want because even though the film's in the public domain and anybody uh, can put out some crappy transfer of it, uh, MGM, I mean, or Warner Brothers in this case, they have the actual original best elements. So they're the ones who are going to be able to give the proper presentation to this film. So really glad to see uh, this, uh, you know, get the love it, it deserves. And last, but certainly not least, uh, just announced on Blu-ray from Film Masters is going to be a double feature Blu-ray of Beast from Haunted Cave and Ski Troop Attack, uh, two movies that came to us by way of Roger Corman. So Film Masters is the same company, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that is putting out a double feature Blu-ray of the giant Halo monster and the killer shrews. And my understanding is that film masters is basically uh, the same thing as the label, the film detective, which uh, when I saw the Blu-ray artwork and announcement for Gila monster, 
I just, I mean, and I saw the name Film Masters. I didn't even read it properly as Film Masters. I just, in my mind, I translated it to as Film Detective because it looks exactly like the Film Detective Blu-rays of these kind of 1950s and 60s cult films that had been coming out recently. Film Detective put out just a s- slew of amazing Blu-rays of movies like The Brain from Planet Eris. Um, they did Ega. They did a Giant from the Unknown and Frankenstein's Daughter. And Film, De- Film Detective, as a physical media label, kind of had a little bit of a rocky start. They put out all these DVDs of public domain titles, and they'd say they're digitally remastered, and they weren't. It was just the same old, uh, you know, uh, kind of crappy transfer. Then they started getting into Blu-rays a little bit, but they were uh, manufactured of the man Blu-rays, BDRs, and they were kind of charging, uh, you know, like 20 bucks each for... Um, you know, stuff that you could make on your computer. They didn't really have any extras. They were still public domain titles. Then they started stepping up and moved over to press disc releases of these movies with uh, full of bonus features, great restorations. So it was really cool to see this evolution that they had. And of course, they also have a streaming channel. Uh, they're on they're on Sling. They have a TV channel as well. Um, so now I, I don't know the whole story behind why it's been rechristened as Film Masters, um, but... I am assuming it has to do with the fact that uh, at the very end of 2020, like December 2020, a film detective was acquired by the company Citadime. So I believe that this is just kind of a rebranding of the physical media line following that. So the two movies on this release, Beast from Haunted Cave, Ski Troop Attack. What are these movies? These movies were made by the production company The Film Group, which was founded by brothers Roger and Gene Corman. Roger Corman, of course, the legendary exploitation filmmaker, and his brother Gene, who has passed on, Roger is still with us, um, was a, also a producer in his own right. Um, and so Beast from Haunted Cave, that came out in 1959. Corman, Roger Corman did not direct that. He was just a producer on it. It was directed by Monty Hellman. It was actually Monty Hellman's uh, directorial debut. Hellman went on to direct such acclaimed films as uh, Tulane Blacktop. Uh, he did the shooting with Jack Nicholson. Did a lot of stuff with Corman, though, early on. Um, and it's a great, it's a really fun monster movie. Uh, filmed on location in South Dakota, uh, Deadwood. Um, and it's about this uh, group of uh, thieves, robbers, who um, cross paths with this uh, cave-dwelling spider-like creature. Uh, it's got great atmosphere, uh, Interesting cast. A lot of Corman regulars. Michael Forrest is in it. He uh, would play the title role in Corman's film Atlas. A lot of people know him from his guest appearance as Apollo on Star Trek. Uh, Sheila Carroll, uh, the leading lady in this, um, she was mostly in B-movies, but a really natural actress. I really liked her performance in this film. Uh, Richard Sinatra, Frank Sinatra's cousin, is in the film. Um, And this was filmed simultaneously with Ski Troop Attack, which is the other movie on this set. Uh, Ski Troop Attack is a World War II film. And um, the first war film that Corman directed, I think he only directed the two of them, this one, and then later he directed The Secret Invasion. And then he took a trip back to World War I for Von Richthofen and Brown. But they were filmed simultaneously uh, in and around Deadwood, South Dakota. And the films used the same cast and crew, uh, obviously, same writer. And um, I've never seen Skeet Attack. It's one of the few Corman-directed films I haven't seen. Like I said, he did direct this film. This does mark the Blu-ray debut of Skeet Troop Attack, which I don't think ever really even had a solid DVD release. Now, Beast from Haunted Cave, that likewise had been subject to many budget label releases. Uh, Synapse did give it a, a solid DVD release at one point. And uh, Retromedia did put it out as a Blu-ray, a double feature with uh, The Wasp Woman. But... Um, even though you know it's not like these were bad releases, they also weren't necessarily reference 
quality releases. Um, you know, it's what happens with a, a title like this that I don't know if the original negative even exists for. Um, I feel pretty confident, though, that Beast from Haunted Cave, that this is going to be the definitive release of this. They're going to do a 4K scan for 35mm archival materials, which them saying that uh, implies to me that they probably don't have the negative, but still... Um, Still, I think it's going to probably the best it's going to look. Uh, the release is going to come out a week before Halloween. It's going to include the extended TV version of Beast from Haunted Cave because what Corman would do with movies like this, he did it with um, Creature from the Haunted Sea. I think he did it with The Last Woman on Earth. As these movies were only, only a little over an hour long, and so he would then film new footage to pad it out a bit so it could be air on TV as like a 90-minute uh, in a 90-minute slot. So they're going to have that extended version of Beast from Haunted Cave on the disc. Um, they're going to have a booklet. They're going to have a, a trailer for Beast from Haunted Cave, and they're also going to have a um, a little feature rap made by Ballyhoo Motion Pictures, a uh, great company, uh, talking about the history of this company, the film group that the Corman Brothers had running for them in the late 50s into the 60s. Really excited for this uh, this to be coming out, and definitely one uh, I'll get day of. All right, so I think that kind of covers everything going on, um, and now we can go to the movie of the week, which... Went with something newer this time around. First time viewing uh, the 2012 movie Snow White and the Huntsman, starring Kristen Stewart, Chris Hemsworth, and Charlize Theron. And this was uh, the year of the Snow White movies. This was the same year that uh, Mirror Mirror came out with uh, Julia Roberts, directed by Tarsem Singh. Um, that had kind of, I, I have not seen that film, but it basically had a light, more lighthearted, uh, whimsical approach to the, the story. And whereas um, Snowy and the Huntsman was supposed to be the grittier, darker, more action-oriented film. So, to go back a little bit, I remember when the Twilight movies came out, um, I had a friend whose lady was a big fan of them, and I went over to visit him one time, and he insisted that we sit and watch the first film because he hated it so much and because he hated having to watch these movies. And I did, and it's not the worst movie ever made, but it also just was not at all a good movie, I thought. The story was very cliched, uh, and I really thought that Kristen Stewart's performance was really bad, as as it's been kind of ridiculed so often since then of all this, the deliberate stuttering, stammering that she does throughout the film. So the last thing I was expected expecting was to really kind of want to dive into one of her movies, not because you should judge someone by that one performance, but also just like a lot of her subsequent work wasn't really interesting to me that she did. Um, but then I remember when the, the trailer for this came out, so flash, flash forward to uh, what, 2012, and I actually thought that the uh, the trailer had some really nice visuals in it and some uh, some interesting some interesting things going on. And I've, I've always been a fan of Charlize, um, and this was Chris Hemsworth, of course, just on the rise after Thor, and I, I kind of liked what he'd been doing. Um, and I've, I love a really appropriately dark rendering of one of the grim fairy tales because those original, those original fairy tales that were retold by Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm were very dark in nature. This looks like it had some of that edge to it. But for one reason or another, I never just got around to seeing it after it came out um, until... The 4K went on sale a couple weeks ago for like 15 bucks or less, and I picked it up and watched it. And again, I'm not going to say, oh, that was such a good movie, but it wasn't too shabby either. It, it had a, It's a very admirable uh, uh, take on the tale. Um, it starts out, the, you know, the classic story, uh, Stoy is born 
to uh, a king and a queen. She's the fairest in the land. Uh, her mother passes away, and her father uh, remarries to, in this, in this film, a woman named Ravenna, uh, who he rescues. Uh, she's being held captive by a phantom army that his, his soldiers defeat. Uh, and he's unaware that she's actually an evil sorceress who has been uh, plotting this all along um, and ends up murdering him and installing herself as uh, the ruler uh, with the assistance of her brother, a character named Finn, played by Sam Spruill. And um, her sorcery comes at a cost, though. It, it, it basically like ages her. Um, so, of course, to stay, to stay young, <laughs> she, drains, she drains the life force from uh, younger women. So now she's in charge of the kingdom. She has uh, Snow White imprisoned, uh, and becomes, of course, this you know evil ruler uh, whose whose wickedness is so bad that it basically plunges the land into darkness. Uh, uh, things do not grow; life does not uh, uh, flourish under her rule. It becomes a dark land. Um, so we go forward ahead in time um, to uh, when Snow White comes of of the age of being played by Kristen Stewart, and she's able to escape from imprisonment. Um, which is much to the chagrin of uh, Charlize because through her magic mirror, she has found out that uh, Snow White, being the fairest of them all, if her life force could be drained, um, Charlize, their own Ravina, would be immortal uh, and would never need to go through this process again. So uh, because Snow White has escaped into the dark forest, this eerie woodland area where um, Ravenna has no powers, um, she has a huntsman found, played by Chris Hemsworth, to track Snow White down and bring her to him. Uh, with the promise that if he does this, he being this grieving widower, she will bring his late wife back to life. And as, you know, without giving any spoilers away, I don't think it's a, you know, a huge reveal to say that uh, there is a change of heart on the part of our huntsman, played by Chris Hemsworth, and he ends up allying himself with uh, Snow White uh, in her quest to avenge her father's death and free the kingdom from the rule of Ravenna. One of the things I like about this film is actually what it doesn't do. There are a lot of things that I feel like contemporary fantasy action movies, they kind of go for that I don't really find that appealing. And this film evades some of that. Uh, One is uh, just lousy comedy relief. You know, as one of the problems with I had with the Lord of the Rings films that Peter Jackson did is the humor in it. I just I just felt like it was really just unfunny and just stupid and you know, I'm not saying I need to have um, you know, the most esoteric humor in the world. I love a good uh a slapstick or prat fall that's well tied, but just the consistency of the humor in those movies was uh, you know, just elevated uh, three stooges, which I'm being extreme in saying that, but you get my idea. You know, it was just it wasn't really that funny, uh, it was stupid, and but there was more than just a little bit of it. Um, and in this film, uh, Snowy and the Huntsman, they they really uh, there is uh, some humor in it. It's not this uh, uh, completely devoid of that, but it doesn't feel the need to kind of just have a, a constant uh, source of comedy relief throughout the film. It doesn't feel the need to have uh, this steady drip of of uh, laughs that it needs to provide to, uh, alle- you know, counteract against the heavier stuff in the film. Also, the action scenes. Um, you know, again, going back to Lord of the Rings, you know, one of the problems I have with some of the action scenes in Lord of the Rings films, they had some really good action scenes, but 
was that there was uh, a tendency to rely on, which is very common these days, a lot of that kind of quick cutting, just constantly quick, 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 quick cutting to try to convey the chaos of battle. But the problem I have with that is that if used too much, you tend to lose any uh, perspective of what's going on. Yes, you get the sense of the chaos, but eventually um, you lose sight of, of the art of this being a film. This isn't, you're not actually supposed to, you're not supposed to be in a battle when you're watching this. You're supposed to be watching a battle and you're supposed to be watching it as told by a filmmaker. And so all the choreography that goes into a fight scene, all the, um, all the design work kind of just gets discarded. Um, and I thought that in uh, Snowy and the Huntsman, in the more so in the larger scale battle scenes that they avoided that. They had, they did a good job, a better job uh, than other films of this time period in ilk of, portraying these larger battles. Now, they did kind of lean on that, um, kind of that quicker cutting on some of the more one-on-one uh, -on -one combat scenes in the film, in Snowing the Huntsman, and that was to its its loss. Um, you know, I was watching, uh, I remember I was younger, I, I saw the first Resident Evil movie. I thought it wasn't half bad, and I went and watched the second one, Resident Evil Apocalypse, which I did not like at all. It, probably one of the worst films I've ever seen. And there's this big fight scene uh, at the end of the movie between Mila Jovovich and this mutant. And it's just so much quick cutting that you can't even really see the choreography of it. And it was to such a degree that on the commentary track even, I think it was one of the actors, I don't think he, was, he wasn't trying to be negative, but he, he did say something along the lines of, oh, it's, it's too bad that they... Uh, don't show, you know, don't film this in such a way that you can see more of the amazing choreography that was going on. Like it was like even he realized that they were they were not filming this appropriately. And in Snowy and the Huntsman in the one-on-one -on -one combat scenes, um, there is a problem where they rely a little too much on the cutting, and also they're filming too tight, so that you really do lose a sense of of the choreography of it all. Because you can tell that they have good fight choreography, decent fight choreography in Snowy and the Huntsman, in scenes where uh, you know. Chris Hemsworth is going one-on-one -on -one with, uh, you know, these uh, knights and trackers who are coming after uh, him and Snow White. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of, it gets a little, uh, gets a little lost in the soup when they, when they get tired of that. But again, just the fact that they did at least do a good job of the larger battle scenes, just the fact that they did, you know, keep the humor at bay and keep it from being just kind of like unappealing, lowbrow, not very well thought out slapstick it was nice just to see this film not making those mistakes to just make the right decisions. Uh, maybe in, in, in these moments of showing these larger scale battles or, you know, the, avoiding the comedy relief, maybe they still weren't, you know, delivering the most famous battle scene ever. Or um, maybe when they did rely on some humor, maybe it wasn't the funniest humor ever. But it was it was solid. It was they were making the uh, the appropriate solid choices instead of going for what would have been the more prevalent popular choice at the time, which would have resulted in a worse product, in my opinion. They they avoided saying, "All right, we're going to have this." Uh, you know, especially at the end of the film, there's this um, a really well located battle that they have s staged between Snow White's forces. Uh, and uh, Ravenna's, where Ravenna's held up in her castle, and it's on like this this beach, like this coast. So, in order to attack it, Snow White and her, the Huntsmen and their soldiers they have to ride along the beach and approach it along the coast. And it was just a really interesting um, idea uh, to to 
you know, place this in such a location that it almost had like a Normandy quality to it, like, you know, the Battle of D-Day where, you know, of course, the famous Battle of World War II where uh, the soldiers stormed the beaches of Normandy. It had that kind of a quality to it. So it was interesting that they chose that location, and it was just nice to see that in depicting the uh, Snowy and her, and her army approaching the castle, attacking it, getting attacked by Ravenna's forces from afar as they use uh, catapults and arrows. It was nice that they did this in such a way so that you could see the scope of what was going on, that they weren't constantly like all over the place. Um, and it really did a good job of um, of selling that scope uh, and, and the real visual beauty of choosing that coastal location for that scene. I think the casting in the film was also really well done. Um, you know, again, as, as much as I didn't like Stuart's performance in Twilight, she was really well cast in this film. Uh, she did a really good job. Um, Hemsworth, uh, Charlize, uh, all well picked to portray their roles. Um, Charlize has a lot of fun with this with this role. She, uh, you know, this is a very full blooded performance she gives as this evil sorceress. And the nice thing about it is that it's not a two dimensional character. It's not just evil incarnate. Um, the idea is that part of the motivation for uh, Ravenna's behavior is her own backstory. The idea that as a child she was taken captive by um, you know, invaders and that she was eventually uh, forced to wed a king whose uh, prior wife was just basically aging out of being beautiful. Um, and she talks in one scene about uh, you know, men, you know, how they, they take what they want and they throw it away when they're done with it. Um, so it was really nice that they kind of added that into the character. I thought it made for a very interesting backstory. I think to the film's fault, and we'll kind of get a little bit more into this as I talk about the screenplay, is that it didn't go more into that. It's like they gave us enough to make sure we knew that this character wasn't just some you know, black and white villainess, but uh, then they kind of put that back in the after they told us about it they can't put it back in the drawer and forgot about <laughs> forgot about it but um she has uh just a lot of fun with the role uh, and part of the, of course the problem with her being so good in the role uh is that there's a substantial section in the middle of the film where she's not really on screen um where we're really just spending time with snowy and the huntsman um and again both hemsworth and stewart are good in the uh, their performances so it's not that spending time with them is a problem from uh, that vantage point. It's more just that um, the there's such a heavy dynamic and such a heavy interest to uh, Theron's character of Ravenna that when we're with the Huntsman and Snow White in this middle section where they're really just trying to make their way from point A, which is kind of initially in the Stark Forest, to point B, which is to reunite with uh, Snow White's father's former allies, um, it's probably the less. It's probably the, the one of the less interesting parts of the narrative. Um, a lot of the, the banter between um, a lot of the dialogue between Snow White and the Huntsman is it's kind of like very cliched. It's very kind of like the, it's the very classic story of you know the Huntsman. He's he feels he let down his wife because she was killed, and he just feels like he's no good to anyone. And uh, you know he's the reluctant hero. He's the Han Solo of the movie, who's like you know I'm no good to anyone. You don't want me around. I just you know. I'll get you from here to there, and then I'm out. Um, and Snow White is very much just, uh, you know, let's, you know, believe in good, fight for the good of the people kind of thing. Um, I, th I might as well get into it now, actually. I think the screenplay really is 
one of the weaker parts of this film for these reasons because in it spends too much time away from the queen from ravenna the sorceress throughout this midsection of the film and which wouldn't be a problem again if it weren't for the fact that the time it's spending with snowy and the huntsman is just kind of going through these kind of very cliched uh paces of just having them travel um and having these kind of uh exchanges which are just basically you know meant to deliver a shorthand about their characters to make sure that we know that in many ways this is the leia and this is the han solo there is kind of like that star wars parallel which makes sense because obviously star wars famously was inspired by uh, classic mythology which you know grim's fairy tales would fall into that um so throughout that midsection it it does improve once we get into the introduction to the dwarfs you know the famous seven dwarfs of snowy and the seven dwarfs but so the screenplay has that problem with it uh, in the midsection. And the, as I mentioned, the other one of the other problems with the screenplay is that it just does not build enough upon Ravenna's backstory. It gives us a taste of it. So again, that we know there's something more going on to her character. But once it does that, it really kind of forgets about it. There is kind of a it comes back to it at one point in the film where there's a flashback, a brief flashback to uh, Ravenna's childhood, which shows how she acquired her magical powers. But I think, and, th- and that flashback actually happens uh, during this kind of midsection. It's kind of like one of the f- few brief moments that we go from Snowy and the Huntsman in the Woods to see what Ravenna is up to in the meantime, and she flashes back to her childhood. I think that what it would have both helped the make this story stronger, the storyline stronger, the narrative stronger, and and uh, have more depth and also deal with this kind of uninteresting midsection is if they had just had had shown more of Ravenna's, uh, not necessarily they had to show more of her backstory, but dive more into her ideology and her motivation. And they could have done that, sprinkled that throughout more of this midsection instead of just having that one cut to her, um, have more have more scenes involving her um, to kind of really flesh out her character even some more. Um, I think it, if her character was more fleshed out so that we saw more of this kind of motivation of uh, you know wanting to take revenge on men because of their uh, conquering, domineering ways, I think it would just would have made the, the climax uh, more satisfying, more rich. Um, you know, the final confrontation between uh, Snow White and, and Ravenna would have definitely been something that... Uh, had more impact than just the classic, you know, we got to have the final final fight of the film. Um, and it, it would have solved that issue of kind of like the midsection being a little, uh, uh, being less interesting, the, le- the least is interesting part of the film. But like I said, once they introduced, so the dwarf character in this film, that's, it definitely picks up there. And that's one thing I can give them credit for is it's definitely a, a really good take on the, the whole concept of the seven dwarfs that kind of aspect of this, the classic Snow White story is, you know, met with uh, issue, I guess you could say, in more recent years. There's, of course, right now, um, Disney's doing a live-action version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was their classic 1937 animated film, um, their first feature-length film, and now they're, as they've done with almost all their animated films, they're revisiting them as live-action properties, and they're just calling it Snow White. Uh, you know, and Peter Dinklage, who is, uh, you know, obviously the very famous little person actor from Game of Thrones, uh, has expressed his concerns about kind of going back to these uh, tropes about um, about little people. And um, and even this film, Snowy and the Seven 
and the Huntsman met with some uh, issue because the way they decided to portray the dwarfs on screen was by having them be played by actors who were not little people, and then they digitally uh, took their performance and laid it over physical performances by little people. Um, which I honestly, from a visual effects standpoint, job well done. Because <laughs> I assumed going into this uh, that it was going to be kind of like a Lord of the Rings thing where they use a lot of forced perspective and you know maybe have you know little people uh, substituting in for them in long shots uh, when their backs are turned. But yeah, they fooled me. Uh, which I guess that's probably where the entire visual effects budget, most of it went, because there are a couple spots in this film where the visual effects are like noticeably weak. Now, for the most part, the visual effects film are solid. It's just solid classic visual effects work. Um, there's like a, a troll in one scene that's you know solid, solid CGI troll. Uh, um, but there are a couple scenes in this film, uh, most notably this one scene where, without giving too much away. Uh, Charlize's character of Ravenna goes through a transformation from one character into Ravenna. She's basically donning a disguise, and it is like really horrible CGI, like really bad. And it's especially appalling because she's transforming literally from one person into a, another human person. So it's like you could have done this old school Universal horror style with just dissolves, and it would have looked better than this CGI. So I don't know if that ate up the whole budget the way they approached the dwarfs, but. I love, though, the characterizations of the dwarves. They are, first off, they got amazing actors to play them. Ian McShane, uh, Nick Frost, um, uh, Toby Jones, uh, Bob Hoskins in his final, this was his final film before he retired and subsequently passed away from Parkinson's. Um, but also just, I just love the way that they portrayed them as this uh, <laughs> band of guys who basically, uh, after Snow White's father fell and the kingdom was plunged into darkness, they just decided to stick together, but had this really cynical, sarcastic uh, edge to them. They're you know, very untrusting just because of everything that's happened around them. Um, and, uh, you know, I have no pro problem mouthing off. Um, just a great sense of humor to their personalities, to their, to the edge that they have and the, and the, and the kind of like the, the sarcasm and, and uh, viewpoints that they have. And just, like I said, embodied by, um, a phenomenal cast. Ray Winstone is another one of them. But yeah, and that was some controversy because uh, of that choice to basically meld a digital, the digitally meld physical performance by little people with these uh, performances by uh, non-little people. Um, I think even like Warwick Davis, another little famous little person actor who played Willow and Wicket and the uh, Star Wars movies, uh, you know, had a problem with that. Um, which I can understand, you know, that you, you would like to see uh, these these characters represented by actual performers who are little people. Um, though I think that there is something to be said for the fact that in, in discussing all these kind of um, issues that people have with the dwarfs and Stoughton the Seven Dwarfs in a modern context, I think it, I think it does help to remember, though, that I don't know that dwarfs in this context are... Of the of the Brothers Grimm context are meant to be actual like little people in the same sense. For example, I mean, uh, in in Grimm's fairy tales and in old mythology, there are many references to giants, Jack and the Giant, uh, for example. And those aren't meant to be actual people suffering from gigantism. There is a, um, you know, this fictional fairy tale aspect to it, where it takes something rooted in real life that there were people who were you know did have gigantism and who were taller, and it takes that and it builds upon it to create this mythological story. And I think that. 
dwarfs and story of the seven dwarfs are kind of of that you know that same idea it's not necessarily that these are meant to be literal people suffering from dwarfism or um that it's more this fantasy take but flip side of that of course that you could also argue again is that well it's still rooted in even though it's a, a fictional mythological take on uh, uh dwarfism or gigantism it's still rooted in the reality that these people exist so I can see both points to that. But I did think that just in terms of the characters, the way they developed these characters, uh, the performances, um, it was always a delight to have them on screen. Um, uh, just especially like, uh, uh, I think, Ray Winstone, Ian McShane, and Toby Jones, and Nick Frost, those four, those are the ones that really, uh, I just loved every moment they were on. Great makeup work, too. Just just the little things they did with like their teeth and their hair and everything. So uh, that that was really fascinating to see that. I think that in the end, the film, what it really needed was it had a, it, the runtime was a little over two hours, which because that midsection kind of dragged, it did. There were moments where it felt a little long, which, of course, a movie that's a little over two hours is by no means long. Um, but I think that this film, which I'd look at as a pleasingly acceptable uh, retelling of the story. I'm, you know, again, I'm not going to go out there and say, oh, that's such a good movie. But no, it's not too shabby either, I'd say. Um I think this could have been a, a really good movie, an awesome movie, if they had just really taken that midsection, uh, devoted it more to uh, playing up the, the the motivations of Ravenna, having a little more time with her, the time we do spend with the Huntsman and Snow White, giving them more to do than just kind of spout this. Um, again, this is no criticism of the performances, but just or even specifically the dialogue in terms of it being awkward or unrealistic, but it's just the conversations they're having. The conversations are conversations you've seen in a million films. It's like they just take them out of this drawer of like, you know, bitter anti-hero <laughs> dialogue. We give that to the Huntsman. Uh, 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 fearless leader trying to inspire uh, a rogue. <laughs> uh, give that dialogue to Snow White. Um, I think that they just, just, you know, really kind of, you know, spend some time to kind of give that more originality, more interest to the conversations that they have. And also another problem I have with that, <laughs> the writing in this film is just the the ease with which, and illogic with which some things happen. Um, so the whole the, the whole purpose, and then the Huntsman even coming into the storyline again is because. Um, Ravenna's brother and his troops chase Snow White to the Dark Forest. They can't find her there. She gets lost. Ravenna has no powers in, in that area, so she can't like look into it or do whatever sorcerer stuff to find him. So they have to find the huntsman to track him track him down. They find the huntsman who's getting his ass kicked in a uh, uh, basically a tavern fight. And then he goes into the woods and it's like bing bang boom he finds her like right away. <laughs> it's like was she really that hard to find? I mean it's it's it, it was it really stood out. Like the whole idea, like one of the characters in your movie's title is the huntsman. He's supposed to be a hunter, which implies he's supposed to be the expert tracker. That's why he's being brought in to this narrative is for his tracking hunting abilities. And you, the challenge of him having to find Snow White is like beginner's level. It seems like, like they, they go into the woods and it's just like, Oh, there she is. Uh, like, did you really need to bring him along? And then compounding that is the fact that after uh, the Huntsman allies himself with Snow White, um, it's necessary for uh, Finn, Ravenna's brother, to find other people to track them into the Dark Forest. 
And he seems to do that with uh, a little prom. He finds like this group of like six or ten uh, evil-looking uh, thugs, one of whom is a tracker, to go into the woods after Snow White and the Huntsman. And um, so it just kind of then my thought process is, well, if you... If these guys have been around this whole time, this gang of, of cutthroats who had their own tracker and they could have tracked Snow White, why did you choose the the one guy who was getting his butt kicked by by uh, by uh, another dude in a, in a, in a drunken a tavern fight? I don't know. Was that really... why, why what, what appealed to you about that guy? <laughs> um, and actually, there's, a, there's more than one scene where it seems like the Huntsman is getting too easily... Too easily getting his ass kicked. Uh, there's, you know, he has a fight scene with Finn, uh, where you know F- Finn gets the upper hand multiple times, and you know Chris Hemsworth is a big dude. So there's little things like that that's just a little sloppy, a little lazy in the writing. Um, and I'm not putting that on any one writer because this is a film that had multiple writers. Evan Dougherty uh, was the original writer on this, and he wrote the script back in like 2003, I guess. Um, took a while. If, to get it made, but if you look at the credits, the other writers on the film are actually really well known. Uh, uh, Jose Namini, who wrote um, Drive, the Ryan Gosling film, uh, he's an Academy Award nominated writer, and then uh, John Lee Hancock, um, he uh, is probably better known now as a director, uh, directed movies like The Blind Side and Saving Mr. Banks. He was another writer on it, so I'm guessing that you know, I, I. I can't say for sure, but I have a feeling this is kind of like a situation where Dougherty wrote the script and then Amini took a pass on it or Hancock took a pass on it rather than like some kind of collaborative effort. So you might kind of, the end result might kind of evidence some of that tinkering by different hands and different mindsets um, that kind of results in some of these kind of issues in a script. Um, So yeah, I think that, again, this is uh, a very acceptable retelling of this classic tale, but had a lot of those screenplay issues been worked out, had we developed Ravenna's character better, had we given um, better conversations to Snow White and the Huntsman, had some of those hand-to-hand combat scenes been uh, better filmed so that they just, you know, didn't seem forgettable in, in, in the watching of them, then I think this could have really been, a, like, I would have walked away and like, wow, that was a really good movie. And it's one of those situations where it does enough right that I don't know if there's really much point in redoing it. In other words, like sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, oh man, uh, that was like on fire for like 70% of the time. But 70% of the time is such a large percentage that it's like it does enough right that you wouldn't ever want to, why bother remaking it or retelling it? It has its flaws, but uh, why bother taking another strike at that? And even though, of course, as we speak, they are, as I said, doing another Snow White movie, they will continue to do Snow White movies. I'm not saying that you can't ever do a Snow White movie. You know, if I was to approach the tale of Snow White, there'd be so much that I would just be like, well, can we just lift this from Snow White and the Huntsman? Like, you know, the idea of uh, the evil queen being motivated by her hatred for men and, um, you know, things of that nature. That I kind of like, uh, you know, I, again, Snow White and the Huntsman, I can't say it's a good film, but it did enough good that I don't know that there'd be much point in retelling this story without me feeling like I'm just kind of like retreading or recutting that or, uh, that initial pass. The film was uh, the directorial debut of Rupert Sanders, who prior to this was an award-winning uh, commercial director. Um, and since then, he he followed this up with Ghost in the Shell, the live-action version with Scarlett Johansson, and um, actually is in post-production right now on the uh, remake of The Crow. Uh, the film did well at the box office, though. Um, 
nabbed almost uh, $400 million um, in receipts on a budget of about a about 170, uh, two Oscar nominations for costumes and visual effects, and followed four years later by a sequel slash prequel, The Huntsman Winter's War. And uh, you know, I watched that trailer for the sequel, and uh, you know, I, I, I liked enough of this film and enough of, uh, enough of what I saw in the trailer for the sequel that I picked that up off 4K too. It was also uh, uh, 15 bucks. So might even watch that next. Not sure if that'll be the next next one I check out. So again, uh, just to kind of sum it all up, uh, this is definitely definitely a film worth checking out. Um, it's it's not reference quality material in terms of action or, or fantasy, but it is a more than uh, capable uh, and at times very interesting, uh, very sturdy uh, retelling of this classic tale, and uh, well cast, very very well cast uh, all around. So check it out if you have had the time. And I think that'll do it for this week. Uh, we will be back next time with more wonderful news on Gila Films. Uh, please continue to just follow us on uh, Instagram and Twitter via the uh, Gila Films handles uh, on Facebook uh, and on YouTube. Spread the good word of Carpet City Cinema to everyone. And uh, thanks for listening.